Luke 13, um, and I'll be reading verses 6 to 9. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well behind me. Um, here we go. Then he, this is Jesus, then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I have come, come, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. We are in the... the we are finishing up our series on the parables of Luke, um, and uh, some of the words that we'll be hearing Jesus, the, the first parts, actually, I'll, I'll give you the text so that you can throw your thumb in there. Um, the 12th chapter of Luke, and beginning at verse 49, is where I'm going to begin. Jesus' first words there is, I've come to set fire to the world and how, how I wish it was already kindled. He also goes on to say uh, in this passage, uh, I am going to divide father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. And those, uh, no one said, while preaching at uh, their nephew's uh, dedication. Um, Jesus, I think in this text, um, and and the, the, where we're going to be working through is kind of embodying the life of a prophet. And uh, Jesus and, the, and the, the Israelites have this long tradition of the prophets who come to Israel and what they are trying to coax out of Israel is a return to the living God, to remind, to recall Israel of the living God's faithfulness toward them uh, and to bring about repentance and trust and belief in that living God. To move themselves, to move Israel and the people of God from a, a place of self-righteousness, uh, of self-trust, um, to trust in God. Um, I want to give you uh, Malachi as the last uh, prophet, the last book in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And I think there are some really wonderful uh, connections and echoes in the text that we're going to look at in, um, in Luke today. Uh, and so I wanna, wanna, want us to hear Malachi. It's the fourth chapter, so the last book in the Old Testament, if you want to go there in your Bible, if that's helpful. Um, and, and as we work through the passage in Luke, I want you to be careful to listen to the similarities and sometimes the jarring differences in Jesus' words when we compare them to Malachi. Malachi says, in the last section of the Hebrew Scriptures, he says, the day is coming, burning like a kiln, when all the arrogant and all who work evil will be stubble will be straw. The coming day will ignite them, 
says the Lord of hosts, and it will leave them neither root nor branch. Prophet goes on and says, but for you who fear my name, or for you who revere my name, or for you maybe who stand in my name, a son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth skipping like calves from the stall. You will tread the wicked, for they will be ash underneath the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The prophet says, remember the teachings that I gave to Moses, my servant. Teachings of statutes and ordinances. When I gave them to him, when I commanded them to him at Horeb for all of Israel. Horeb is a name for uh, Sinai. So the prophet is calling Israel back to that moment when God made faithful, uh, made a faithful covenant to Israel. And Israel made a covenant to God. The prophet says, remember that. Remember the movements of life that cultivate fidelity. And then the last thing that the prophet says, this hopeful piece, um, he says, lo, or behold, look, see, I'm sending my prophet Elijah before the coming of that terrible and great day of the Lord. Elijah will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I don't come and strike the earth with a curse. Um, the prophets, and, I, and you got to hear the prophets in Jesus, I believe, today, they have this overwhelming desire to remind Israel of, of their relationship with the living God and what it looks like to live in the presence of the living God, what fidelity looks like. Um, we often hear Jesus talk about um, the need for repentance and belief. This is, these are like, this is like the pillar of the Christian life and the way in which we live. Not only that moment when you come to, when you, when you realize that Christ is who he says he is and you turn to him, repentance is this, you've probably heard it many times, but if you haven't, uh, this idea of changing your mind uh, or turning around, literally returning. And repentance and belief is what makes covenantal, uh, is, is the essence of covenantal fidelity with the living God. It is this constant movement. Um, and it's worked out, this, this relationship with the living God is worked out, worked out in our daily relationships with one another. That might be why Micah points to the relationship between parent and child. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this movement, uh, Micah says, uh, Malachi says, I am going to turn, I am going to cause the heart of the parent to turn to the child, and I'm going to cause the heart of the child to turn to the parent. In that faithfulness between parent, that tight relationship between parent and child, we get a glimpse of what the relationship between the living God and the world looks like, okay? So, in Jesus' message today, it seems like 
this is. This is what he's getting at. That there is a desperate need for us to realize that that life is about fidelity with the living God. And it is a move it is a life of constant constantly checking one's heart and its posture toward the living God. This is the notion of repentance, of turning. Um, The thing is, uh, often, the people of God and we, the world, tries to get at we have this longing for righteousness, for things to be right in the world, for the sun to rise and for us to experience that as a calf who skips from the stall, for us to have peace. We long for that desperately in our own lives and in the lives of the world and in the world, in our neighborhoods, in our city and moving outward. Um, But often we try and get at that unhinged from the yoke or unhinged from a relationship to the living God who can make that right. To bring back Malachi, it's often that we want those, those things to happen. Uh, we want peace. We want um, there to be no more arrogance, no more wickedness, no more working of evil. We want that desperately, but often we, unhint- we, we want that outside of the relationship of the one who can make that happen. We forget that repentance comes before all of that. Um, We forget Sinai in this radical way of that our life is connected to the living God. And we have a life because God trusts us, has faith in us. Faith enough to say, I'm committing to you. Will you commit to me? Uh, And what happens is this subtle movement of, I mean, sometimes we've heard this, but hypocrisy, right? This idea, this kind of uh, subtle desire for the right thing to happen and a zealousness for that without ever looking inward and realizing that we are, we are part of the problem. It begins in the human heart, everyone's heart. I think this is why Jesus does this radical thing less, you know, less we think that that movement of parent to child and child to parent, that repentance, if we think that is just a formality and we don't actually take the time to make that movement in our own hearts and we skip to the part where, I mean, the strong language of that the arrogant and the, the workers of evil will be stubble. Um, you know, there's a, there's a hypocrisy that comes out of that. And I think Jesus changes the words. Uh, well, let me, let, me, let me recite the text and then we'll, we'll talk about Jesus' words. Jesus says, I've come to set the world to fire and I wish it was already kindled. I have a baptism to be immersed in and how stressed I will be until it is completed. 
do you think I've come to give peace on the world? Maybe, do you think I've come to establish peace? I have not come to establish peace. I've come to make division. From now on, there'll be five in one house, and they'll be divided against one another. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So if you're thinking about Malachi and you are, it's as if, you know, if you have, if, if you have, have ever, if you've ever had this experience where you're praying the Lord's Prayer together and you're not praying the same Lord's Prayer and you start stumbling over each other, it would be like this. The, the rote language of Malachi is suddenly jarred by Jesus saying, I have not come to make peace. In fact, those that you want to be united, I'm going to divide them. And I want to, this is kind of where we're, uh, it's, I think it's because Jesus is saying, you can't make peace. You can't make someone repent. What I have come to do is to till the soil of the heart so that you can make that movement yourself. That you can actually understand what it looks like to repent toward one another, to turn to one another. That is what I've come to do. I've come to fulfill the prophecy. It's just not how you thought it was going to be. You're not going to escape the difficulty. Because I've come to bring life abundant. I've, for those who assume the inevitability of a reunion in repentance, who it becomes rote, Jesus' words are incredibly jarring. As if, you know, the reunion of parent to child and child to parent is an uncontested thing. As if it's just going to happen without the difficult work of laying one's life down. Um, we'll get to the parable, but it's interesting how Jesus starts to look at the crowd and tries to coax this, this kind of this posture out, this to, I mean, the Hebrew in Malachi is actually cause to repent. I am going to, Elijah is going to come and do a work that will allow each person to make the move of repentance in their own heart. It's not going to be forced. I've not come to make peace. I've come to allow you to make peace. Jesus says to the crowd, pointing out this kind of life that they've started to live, desiring righteousness, desiring the right thing, apart from their own need to make the move of repentance. He says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say there's rain coming. And so it does. He says, when you feel a southern breeze, you see the breeze coming from the south, immediately you say, there will be a scorching wind today. And Jesus says, you hypocrites, you pretenders, you actors, you fakers, how is it you understand, you, un you, know, you understand how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, 
how is it you fail to interpret the present season? How is it you look at the weather patterns and don't know what season it is? Often, I, I, you know, I mean, this is just kind of generally what we do as a people, but we look out and we uh, are very good at saying, okay, here's the situation in our world, here's the situation in our home, here's the situation in this relationship, and these are all the things that we have to do to make it right. Jesus is saying, you're as one who looks out on the world and the weather patterns and you see what is happening, you can make sense of it, but the actual movement that is called for is never made, which is repentance, which is this realization that is the living God who makes right. And if we are not connected to that living God, then we run a very dangerous risk of hypocrisy, of trying to make that happen on our own, of being the judge of that, of, of making that rightness. The gospel goes on, and it even, you know... There's this wonderful exchange between people who give two scenarios right after Jesus talks about the danger of looking out on the world and not realizing what, the, what, what is called for in this moment. Um, and, and I'm not going to recite it or quote it, um, but it's essentially people from the crowd bringing Jesus questions about the day uh, and saying, you know, who is more sinful in this situation? There's news in Galilee. Galileans were in probably the temple, and they were worshiping, and Pilate, who was the, the kind of authority in Rome, uh, the Roman authority in Jerusalem, went in and murdered these Jews worshiping. And Jesus supposes, uh, you know, the question is getting at, you know, are these, you know, who's more right? Did they deserve it, really? You know, did those people deserve it? Uh, a desire to look out on a situation and understand if those people deserved what they got. And Jesus says, you know, these Galileans, these people who suffered these things, they're not more sinful than all other Galileans. And he says, unless you make the movement of repentance in your own life, you will suffer the same fate even uses an example of what we would call an act of God in which a tower falls on 18 people in Jerusalem. And he says, these people aren't worse off than all the other people in Jerusalem. You've got to understand that. But unless you yourself make the movement of repentance, the same fate awaits you. Jesus culminates this whole teaching and this whole exchange this call to look inwards and return to, to God with a parable, four lines, he sums up what he's been talking about. Um, and it's almost, you know, some have said, you know, parables are just, uh, parables are more than just um, good stories about, artic you know, to, to, to prove a point about one thing that Jesus is teaching. In this parable, it's almost as if Jesus sums up the whole reality of the world. He says, there's a certain man and a fig tree planted in his vineyard. 
And he would come to this fig tree looking for fruit, but would find nothing on it. Kind of as if the fig tree didn't understand what season it was. Man comes looking for fruit on it, can't find anything. And he turns and he, and he goes to the vine dresser, his vine dresser, the one who looks after his vineyard and says, for three years, I have come looking for fruit on this tree. I've found nothing. Cut it down. Why should it take up space in this garden? Why should it make null the ground in which it is planted, the vineyard in which it is planted? And his vine dresser replies to him and says, Sir, leave it for one more year. During that time, I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit in the coming year, great. All the better. If not, you will cut it down. What I was, what I was so kind of enamored with in this parable is the vine dresser because the vine dresser is demonstrating a trust and a fidelity to the fig tree that doesn't understand what season it is in, doesn't understand what might come about in its, you know, what, what doesn't understand the fig tree is in season, is not bearing fruit, and it is the vine dresser, the trust of the vine dresser and the fidelity of the vine dresser that gives that tree everything it needs to make the movement of bearing fruit. For in the context of the passage, the fruit is the movement of repentance, the, remo- the movement of turning. And... Um, I think this is just an incredible thing that, so now I'm going to start, you know, uh, taking this parable and making connections with it uh, to God and that it is God's faithfulness toward the world that gives it everything it needs to turn to him. God has repented of the position that God is in to clear the world and make it new, to, to, to do away with the whole, like, it is God's fidelity and concern and covenantal love and faithfulness that walks, that, that is beside this, this plant to bring it into a place where it can bear fruit. Fascinating. We often think of repentance as this very difficult thing, uh, and it is difficult, of course. I mean, you know, we're talking about life with the living God is worked out in our daily relationships, and we know just how difficult those daily relationships can be. the The feeling in the pit of your stomach when you know that you have done wrong, you've made a mistake. You've broken trust with someone. 
Jesus says that that movement is because I've been just fertilizing the crap out of you. Literally with crap, right? This is what you fertilize, right? I have been I have just been sleeping beside you day and night so that you can make this movement. There are other ways to make a fruit tree bear fruit. You dig it around its roots and you cut the roots back. You starve the tree. You prune it till it's just a whip in the ground. It's funny that the parable doesn't express that. It's through deep fertilization. And maybe it's, and actually I think we long for this this day of righteousness. And I think Jesus is saying in this, this chunk of teaching that actually that is, you can figure out and decide for yourself what is the what is the right thing? There's a piece, if you've been noticing or following along, that I've skipped over. Uh, and Jesus says, why don't you decide for yourselves what is right? As you leave for court with your opponent, make every effort to settle with them on the way. Lest they drag you before a judge and the judge hands you over to an officer and the officer throws you in jail. Kind of this beat of being removed from the actual problem. One step away, two steps away, three steps away. And Jesus says, in that third step, in prison, I'm telling you the truth, you're not getting out of there until you have repaid every little piece of your debt. And still you won't be reconciled with this person. But if you realize that the right thing, the righteous thing, is actually the movement of repentance, is that it actually begins with repenting, turning your heart to your opponent and recovering faith with them, then you can actually make those steps. In fact, when you, when you repent, you give the your opponent or the person you've wronged an incredible gift. This is the fruit of repentance. You've given them the, the ability to repent themselves, to forgive you, and to release themselves of a thing of, of exacting justice against you, which they are not capable of doing. What if the right thing, what if the righteous thing that Jesus is kind of stirring up in these people who have Malachi on their mind, right? This, this hope. He's saying it begins with you and it begins with you saying, I was wrong. That is, I mean, I think about it, that is a divisive statement. That will divide families and churches and a society bent on making peace. This statement that Jesus says, is like, you, you can be wrong. And in fact, in your repentance, in your movement of turning to the person that you may have wronged, you give them the ability to repent themselves. And in that relationship dwells righteousness. In that relationship dwells peace.
That's right. Pentecost. Next week is Pentecost. This beautiful moment in the church's history where there is this unity that is made. Um, this bringing together. Indeed, the probably that unity of Malachi, you know, hints of that Malachi unity of fidelity being remade in the spirit. The spirit uniting the church. Um, opponent, you know, enemies are made whole in the church and families are brought back together in the movement, the mutual movement of repentance and belief. And it's, it's the spirit uniting us in that. I have just so many thoughts about what this means for our world and what it means that Jesus releases us from the need to be right or from the need to make peace, to impose peace, but says, in the conflict, in the strife, in the broken relationships, I've given you the ability to repent. And as you make that movement of repentance and belief, you will be drawn closer to one another and ultimately closer to me because you will have, you will have done movements, you will have made movements that I made long ago for your sake. Each week we gather around the table. Uh, there's an author who says, we live in a world of project self. Uh, and as Rob was talking, it reminded me that our world is desperate for peace and we long for it, but we really long for the kingdom without the king and peace without the prince of peace. What Rob's saying this morning is we're actually trying to do it ourselves. And the table every week reminds us we actually can't do it ourselves. There's this, there's this beautiful verse in the book of John. It's my favorite piece in the whole of the scripture. In John chapter 6, Jesus is given this really powerful teaching. And it actually says, everyone deserts them. And the only people that are left that are the disciples. I mean, that's one way to get rid of a ministry pretty fast. Um, Jesus seems to get rid of people uh, quite well. And there's these few people left. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, what about you? Are you going to go as well? And Peter, that seems appropriate this morning, turns and says this, where else can we go? We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And this morning, I honestly feel like some of us, maybe myself included, have been running a lot. I've been running into lots of different things, lots of different places. I've been trying to find life and satisfaction. And this morning, Peter's words would echo with us. But Jesus, where else can we go? You're the only one who can truly satisfy us. St. Clair, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the countenance of his face upon you and grant you his peace. Depart in, depart in peace and in great joy. Amen.